I'd like to begin with a teaching from Ryokan. <clears throat> and because we were bringing the ancestors into the room today, it had an impact on me and how I was thinking about the talk tonight. <clears throat> and Ryokan is one of my ancestors meaning he's one of my teachers who's had a louder, okay? Okay, how's that? Better, no, better? Okay, and please tell me again if, it's, if I'm too quiet, because sometimes I get quiet and, you know, I'm nice to be around, but it's not good for teaching. <laughs> so, in case you didn't hear, I'll repeat a little bit just to say that I'd like to begin with a teaching from Ryokan, who's one of my teachers and has been for the last 25 years. Oh, actually, even longer, 30 years since I got introduced to Ryokan. And, uh, he, he uh, it, I believe the name of the book was One Robe, One Bowl. One Robe, One Bowl. And it's the poetry of Ryokan, who was a monk and a teacher in Japan a few centuries ago. And he's, he offers this poem teaching. He says, even if you consume as many books as the sands of the Ganges, even if you consume as many books as the sands of the Ganges, it is not as good as really catching one verse of Zen. If you want the secret of Buddhism, here it is. I was pausing. I wasn't stopping. <laughs> <laughs> but you were good. You got me on that. <laughs> that was good. I, I, I see there's another way to do this poem. <laughs> he says, if you want the secret of Buddhism, here it is. Everything is in the heart. And it's a beautiful understanding and a beautiful teaching. And it's a beautiful way to meet Ryokan because he's all heart. And it's one of the reasons I fell in love with him as a teacher because he was so real and he was so himself and he wasn't afraid of being himself all the way to the end. And that's a, that's a phrase that is often used in Zen. To, the way to practice is be yourself all the way to the end. And you're not trying to get rid of yourself. And you're not trying to deny yourself. But the way to wake up, be yourself all the way to the end. And that's a beautiful understanding uh, in my experience. <clears throat> and so, and of course, then what he says, of course, everything is in the heart. And this is what we're pointing at in this retreat in a variety of ways with a variety of t 
teachings with a variety of teachers and their hearts and with you and your hearts. And your hearts uh, meaning not just all the wonderful things about the heart, but the real heart, the whole heart, the ups and downs of the heart, the ins and outs of the heart, the, um, the beauties and the difficulties of the heart all become part of the heartfulness of practice. And, and, and the other, since I'm on a little Zen track here, um, uh, the other quote that I could add, if I can remember it, uh, is from Shikibu Izumi, who said, let's see if I can get it now, I'm not going to get it all, but I'm going to get the important line, which is, she said, she says, contemplating the moon at night, silent, no movement, everything still. I know myself completely, no part left out. Right? So she's contemplating the moon, which, of course, the moon in Japanese Zen is a symbol of awakening. So she's contemplating herself and the fullness of herself or the realness of herself or the truth on the Dharma level. Dharma means truth on the level of Dharma. And she, re and she sees no part left out. Beautiful teaching, I believe, I feel. And so we're, we're asking all of us, including ourselves, right? Because please remember, the teachers have a retreat with you. It's not a retreat separate from you. It's, we're, we're doing different roles a little bit, but we're also having a retreat and practicing and having the, um, the reality of practice, which is not any one thing, but as many things as I'm assuming you've all discovered over the last number of days, right? That each day is different, each hour is different, each moment is different, because reality is alive here now. And we're studying this reality, the living reality, the live reality that Tara was pointing at today when she talked about us just paying attention to the aliveness that's sitting in each seat here, each seat. And that aliveness which is something of uh, uh, something indescribable about the aliveness that sits here. Something indescribable, but paradoxically knowable right now. <clears throat> and so the heart that we've been pointing at is woven into this retreat. And really, we've, we've said it before, it's woven into my understanding, this was Larry's idea originally, and it's woven into Larry. It's part of who Larry is. And I know Larry, you know, for a while now and pretty well and have a 
great love, appreciation for Larry and his heartfulness about waking up and the Dharma and what's possible for each of us. And that that was his part of his dedication to creating this teaching team and, and then doing this retreat here. <clears throat> and um, the heart is part of all the teachers here. I, I know everybody here, and uh, even the people I've just met in this week, which most everybody I know, and, um, and it's great to be with this kind of heart this kind of love of the Dharma, of reality, of the truth, of freedom, of awakening, of discovery, of seeing clearly the way things are now. Not even bound to whatever we've discovered in the past, but discovering now more, or again, or anew, because it is new reality. And one of the misunderstandings that we all, including the teachers, bring to practice is, oh, we think we're going to get it and then we're done. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> and I say that because for sure I had that idea somewhere along the line, but the Dharma beat it out of me. <laughs> and, and I say that <laughs> I say that, I was going to say, I say that affectionately, but I was a little embarrassed to say that. <laughs> but, but really what I mean is, oh, here's one of the misunderstandings that usually starts to clarify as we practice, is we think we're going to do the Dharma, and then we see, oh, the Dharma's doing us. That we're doing our practice, but what happens is then... The Dharma has its impact. It changes us. It changes our, our vision, our understanding, our experience, our knowledge. And it's a beautiful, some people like to use the word dance. Some people say, oh, it's a beautiful love affair because a love affair changes us. Otherwise, it's not really a love affair. Because we don't control the other person. We don't own the other person. We don't control the Dharma. We don't arm, own the Dharma. The love affair is part of realizing, oh, we are the Dharma. Or the Dharma is happening right here, and it's not ours. There's something more intimate about it than we're used to, than we're familiar with, than we often discover. And so the sacredness, the tenderness, the heartfulness of this retreat, we hope, we wish for sure, that it's being felt or being um, discovered even with the ups and downs that are normal as part of practice. The being here, the forgetting, the being present, the thinking, the doing, doing the whole show, right? I don't, 
I, I don't think I have to describe it to you. It, I, I would imagine it's all happening. And, and then learning how to relax with what's happening and it keeps revealing more of the depth of what's happening, not just the surface. I think somebody, Larry, said something about the surface of the water today. Might have been somebody else, I'm not sure. Was that Larry? No, who said it? Tara said it, okay. I try to give credit to, you know, they, they look the same to me, but <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> So, uh, uh, <laughs> so, so, <laughs> and even in even the humor is such a beautiful part of the Dharma, because reality is, and this is a very, this isn't a, a quote directly from the Buddha, but it's a direct quote from Eugene. <laughs> You know, reality, reality is wild. And, it's, and to keep discovering the wildness of reality that is here, that's one way to say it, or that we can say we are reality. When I'm saying reality, it's, I'm looking at it. I am it. We are it. And this reality, it's a wild deal as far as I can tell. And I've been around a little while now, so I feel, you know, I feel clear about the wild part. <laughs> and, you know, as long as I'm saying that, I also feel pretty clear about the love part. Because it's a beautiful expression of reality. And I'll give you a little more Buddhist part from the Buddha himself. He said, it is in this way that we practice, that we train ourselves, by liberation of the self through love. This is from the Buddha. We, we train ourselves by, by, that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis, take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. This is the Buddha from the Samyutta Nikaya. And it's a beautiful understanding of what practice is and, and where the Dharma's heading or pointed or woven with the heart and the love of reality that comes, oddly enough, spontaneously. It's not something you have to do. You can cultivate it for sure. But if you stay here and you practice, I, I would bet my money you will discover it because it's already here. It's already in the heart. And as the heart starts to relax, starts to open, starts to release the hurts, the difficulties, the pain, that every, I'm sure everybody here has plenty of, and, and that we all know about, but as that starts to let go, not be concretized, but to soften or become tender, then pay attention to what's here as the heart reveals itself. 
And we've been talking here about the Dharma and teaching about what we know and our, including our experience. And Tanisha was talking very beautifully last night about the truth of both conventional and ultimate reality. And if you don't know that phrase, in Buddhism, there's, in addition to the four noble truths, there's the two truths. And the two truths are relative and ultimate reality. And it's, it's a beautiful, I, I love that teaching. It's a beautiful understanding because it's pointing to what's here and what's already here and what we may know and what we may not know both. And, and, the, and the, the teaching I, I really appreciate about the two truths, because when I was a young man in the Dharma and hearing about the two truths, right, relative and ultimate truth, take a guess which one I wanted. You know, I'm like, oh, give me that ultimate stuff. I'm like, let's go for that. I've had enough of this relative reality. You know, conventional, that's okay. I, you know, I can have some fun there, but I want, I want the absolute. I want the ultimate. I want the, the transcendent. And, you know, that's not a bad thing to want at all. Great to want it. And, and be aware of your wanting, my wanting, right? And then I learned more about the teaching more, and again, uh, and in, especially in the Zen tradition, they say, oh, there's two truths, relative truth and ultimate truth, and they're equally true. Now, that's a good teaching. That's, that's cool far as I'm concerned, because that begins to break down the habit, at least that I had, of seeking something somewhere else and not seeing that the somewhere else is also right here. And so reality gets much more interesting when we see that the ultimate is right here in the relative. And they're not actually so separate, even though we can distinguish those different domains of reality. And they're helpful to distinguish because mostly we're trained to relate to relative reality, to conventional reality. Like, oh, that's the deal. Grow up, get a job, you know, have, have a partner or something, you know, have some kind of relationship, be happy, and, and that's it. That's the deal. And, and that's not a bad deal, you know. I mean, it has its pluses and minuses, we all know. But, <laughs> but it's, it's that we're told if we do that, you grow up and, you know, especially in many parts of, of America, you're told, oh, you go to college and then you become a real person, of course, by going to college. Um, and, uh, and you get the, a job and have some kind of, you know, relationship. Or, and then you're mature, right? That's, that's maturity. It's conventional maturity. 
And the reason why it's helpful to begin to distinguish relative and ultimate is because there's other levels of what it means to mature as a human being. And that's when, in my mind, oh, human beingness gets really interesting. I mean, I, the relative maturity actually is great and good and important and needed, but it's not the end of the story. There's more potential for us to develop the maturity that the Buddha developed. And that's one way of talking about what happened for him. Because he, he did all the you know, things, right? If you know the basic story of the Buddha, he was a prince and he, you know, he was in a, a well-off family. He was, he was upper class for his time. And you know, he, he did all the things that you do if you're upper class for his time, and including I always like to let people know he, he was a total hedonist. Everybody know that? Okay, good, I'm glad everybody. Anybody not know that? Uh, one person, okay, thank you. <laughs> but, but, and so you read about his life and you see, oh yeah, he did what you do if you're, you know, to, to be shorthand, a rich person of his time and place. And he had a lot of fun, we could say, a certain kind of fun. And, um, and he fulfilled the hedonistic idea that pleasure is the way to be happy. He, he did it. He did it way did it. And he wasn't happy. And he wasn't afraid to be real about that. And so he started looking outside of the conventional. And the story, which I'll only tell quickly, is just there were the three, really four heavenly messengers, which he because he'd been protected by his family. He had kind of a, a Jewish uh, father, mother. <laughs> and, and, and I'm Jewish, so I get to say that. And you, you can't give me any shit about it. But, but um, you know, in other words, his father was overprotective. He was, because when, when the Buddha was born, a seer, uh, a psychic, we could say, saw that the Buddha would either become a great king or a great spiritual leader and told the father that. And the father didn't want him to go be a spiritual teacher. He wanted him to be a king. You know, he's, he's like many fathers, you know, you know, do what I do. So, so, um, uh, so, it, so he, he overly protected the Buddha, even to the point when the flowers died in the courtyard, the servants would pick the dead flowers so the Buddha would never see them, right? I mean, he wanted to make home so great the Buddha would never leave. And he did it, you know, good job. The Buddha hung around, but then it didn't matter. Even with all his hedonistic pleasure, he was like, no, I'm, I'm, I, I, I need to see what's out there. And so he went out and the first thing he saw as a, as a sick person, which startled him, and began to, as he talks about it, it begins to take him out of his intoxication with wellness, because he sees, oh, that's part of human life, illness. And then old age, 
maybe it's the other way, maybe first old age, then illness, then death. And each time, and it's three different times he goes out and he, he encounters old age, sickness, death. And each time he's shocked because he really hasn't seen this reality. And it impacts him because he has a sensitive heart, like we all do. And so he begins to be um, disintoxicated, uh, uh, unintoxicated. I love how they say that. He becomes unintoxicated with youth, with health, and with uh, life. And that le that's one of the ways that leads to him seeking enlightenment. Doesn't mean he thinks there's anything bad with youth or health or, or um, life, but he's not intoxicated by it. And you know what it means to be intoxicated. It means actually we're not seeing clearly. And so the disintoxication or unintoxication, he started to see a little more the way things are for human beings, and he wanted to know more. And then he saw a mendicant, a practitioner, and he got a transmission. He said, that's what I need to do. <clears throat> and so I'm gonna throw in a personal story because it's coming up now, and I had it as a maybe in this talk, but, um, and it's a little bit about um, how I came to practice personally because it had to do with my heart. And it was very, um, and I'd been, um, you know, I'd had, you know, a good life, hedonistic enough, no problem with that. And, and, uh, and I'd been uh, in the arts for many years and a musician and very devoted to music, loved music, played a lot of improvised music and with yeah, very devoted. And uh, at some point, a friend of mine, his, a woman who was related to his, the woman his brother had married, came to San Francisco, and she was a Yemenite Israeli woman. And, um, and we got fixed up a little bit, and we had a little romance while she was in San Francisco. And, and she was very... Um, lovely woman and very different than me and I learned a lot and it was it was you know I, I liked her a lot and uh, and then she left and you know I was probably a little more interested in her than she was in me to be honest which you know that happens and <laughs> and, uh, and anyhow she left but I I, I liked her and and uh, I thought oh, I'm gonna I'll, and I'm Jewish, but I hadn't been really involved in Judaism since I was a kid. And I thought, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll go to Israel and say hi to her. And <laughs> you know. <laughs> this, could be, this could be a very male way to think. <laughs> so, so... You know, I, I kind of arranged it, and boy, it was complicated for many legal reasons having to do with my past that you're not going to hear about. <laughs> and uh, and I, went, I went to Israel, and, you know, I, it was interesting to be there and fascinating, and I, um, 
I was there for the high holy days, and so I did some of that, which I'd never done like that before. It was fascinating. And then, um, oh, oh no, I remember. So I went to I went to her village, which was a little village and very different than anywhere I'd been, and and uh, and. You know, she was a little surprised to see me. <laughs> but she was very gracious, and her, and her family was great. They were totally lovely. And, and, uh, and, you know, basically, I got to hang out with her family a lot. <laughs> and, and it was great, because I, I learned a tremendous amount from them. And, uh, and, and beautiful, very interesting, because they... Uh, the Yemenite Israelis, when they do a service at the synagogue, they do it in the pre-Hebrew language of Aramaic, and so and it's and and really the synagogue, which was in this village, was a very small room, uh, uh, an eighth of the size of this room, but with the same kind of brick, like that's what it was made out, and it wasn't fancy or anything like that. But it was for real. It was no, no bullshit. People were for real there. And, there was, and you didn't get dressed up to go to the synagogue. You just came and the singing and the prayer and the devotion was real. It was, it was beautiful and taught me a tremendous amount. And, um, and so anyhow, so soon after that, I went to... I was I did this high holy days in Jerusalem a little, and then and there's a atonement you do right. And there's the day of atonement in in the holy days for uh, Jews, and you atone for a number of things. But and I was doing it, and there was an English transliteration, so I could understand what I was doing. And the second atonement, it's moving just to remember. The second atonement was for hardening of the heart. And, and that, that, that hit me in the heart because I realized, and I wasn't, I wasn't very old, but I wasn't young. I realized, oh, my heart had hardened, right, from between 18 and 26 or whatever it was. My heart had hardened. You know, I'd had life and romance and good and bad and things like that. And uh, and it just and it really just hit me that atonement, and so and then and then the services were over and and it just stayed with me. And then uh, a couple few days later, I was at the Wailing Wall, which I you know never been to, and I don't know, I didn't know how to pray or anything. But you put your hands on the wall; it's been there for. I think 5,000 years or something like that, and people have been praying there for a long time. There's a lot of presence there. And so I put, and, and really I just was like, not exactly praying, but I, more asking, okay, what do, I, what do I need to do? You know, what, what's needed? And what came, which totally surprised me, is <laughs> you need to learn how to meditate. <laughs> Which is not a big Jewish thing. I hope you know that. <laughs> and it was like, what? <laughs> but, but it was totally clear. That was the message. And enough was happening for me 
right? That I listened. And when I came back to San Francisco, I started asking about how do I learn how to meditate and got, got directed to a, a kind of guru guy who uh, I hated at first, but <laughs> you know, then he, he had a lot of cities, a lot of powers, and it was wild to be around him because things started to happen that were not the conventional. So anyhow, that way, but anyhow, here the finish kind of really finished the story. So I hung out with this guy for a while, I don't know, not quite a year, but, and then he kicked me out. And uh, so, I, but now I like to meditate. So I started to look around for places to meditate. And you could go to Zen Center and you could just walk in for the meditation at 5.30 in the morning or 5.30 in the evening. And they didn't, they didn't ask for a fee and they didn't bother you. And you could just leave. I didn't have to relate to anybody. I could just go meditate. <laughs> so that worked good for me. <laughs> And that's how I started to really get into Buddhism, was there. And then somebody sent me to Jack Cornfield, and I went and did a day long, and I thought, okay, this guy's okay. I could relate to him a little. <laughs> so, so the heart is an important part of what we're doing here. Cause, and, and this is my assumption, but I'm going to say it. Why? Why are we here if there's not something we care about that brings us here, right? And it, what, it may be freedom or the sure heart's release or liberation or love or compassion or kindness or freedom or whatever. It, it's something. Or not being bound by the habits or the usual or what, what we've, how we've been either trained or the kind of, uh, either by our family or by our community or by our society or by our culture, that there's something more we, we all seek and it's something we care about even if we can't articulate it. We still know something already and so we're seeking it. And that, my my understanding, my belief is, oh, that's the heart already here expressing itself. And it brings us all here. And it may be just, you know, you may come because, oh yeah, Dukkha's driving me crazy and I want, but that's the heart talking because something cares about us and that something is right here, is sitting right here for each of us. And I, I loved what Tennis was talking about last night. It really, the way I heard it, was the heart of reality and how that plays out personally and collectively and communally and societally. And, uh, and, but she was not just pointing at the conventional heart, but also at the ultimate heart, the heart that's unborn, undying, timeless, deathless, she was pointing at something that's here that we, we experience, we know, even if we don't know it in that kind of articulation, we know it intuitively. We feel it. We know what we love. We know what we care about. We know what's important to us. And so we come here to practice, and it's, 
it's a very, if you're new, it can be seem like a very odd thing to do. To be quiet and sit and walk and just be with your direct experience. It's not what we're taught. It's not how we're trained. And it's not that what the things we've been taught or trained were bad, but this is a very uh, profound, that's not quite the word I want, but I'll, it's, it's a good word, profound, but really I, I don't have the right word. I, I could say it's a profound teaching, but it's, uh, I'll just throw a few of the words that come. It's a heartfelt teaching and practice of reality, of discovering reality. And that is not taught everywhere. Different components, things are taught, all kinds of education is taught and intelligence is taught and the arts are taught and they're all a manifestation or part of reality. But the livingness the living reality that's sitting here, what that is, that's not taught so quickly or easily or simply, except because it's so simple. It's already here. It's already sitting in each seat. You know, I, I could ask you or if, to play with it and see, oh, what, what is knowing what I'm saying? I, I could say it different ways, like who is knowing what I'm saying, but I think it's more, it's better to get out of the who or who am I, but the what is knowing it. What is consciousness that knows words, right? Because of course I could be saying other stuff and you wouldn't know. I could go, and, and you know, I'm, and you could get a little feel from the cadence and the sound, but it's, <laughs> no, some people said no, no, no feel, okay. But, but, but it, you know, but there is this magic happening where I'm saying something and you're having some sense of it and, and also not just a sense of it, but your own understanding, liking, not liking, which is all fine. And the awareness of that is happening the whole time. Whether you're aware of the awareness of it or not, it's happening right now. And so there's something magical or mysterious or a little unconventional happening that we can start to point to and so, and, but we don't have to get rid of the conventional, because we are the conventionals here, but more that that's not the end of what's here. It's not the end of the story of what's here. And so this heartfulness comes when we're starting to live here. I'm going to go right from my talk for a minute. Starting to live in the simplicity and magic of reality. And we discover, and this is because there's a nice word I have written here, and that's why I'm going here. <laughs> we discover the phantasmagorical reality. <laughs> I'm going to say that again. <laughs> we discover the phantasmagorical reality, 
that's sitting right in each seat. Meaning it's not being made up. It's not an idea. It's alive in this amazing, phantasmagorical way of sight, sound, taste, touch, thought, feeling, image, and more. And without, you know, there's words, I mean, feeling the, the transmission of experience, of knowing, or getting a sense, or even a little feeling of one another right now is happening. <clears throat> and so we get introduced to, and, practi and, and practice is, part of practice is being aware of what we know, the conventional, and coming closer to what we don't know, the unconventional. So the known and the unknown are alive here for all of us, and the Dharma begins to highlight knowing and not knowing. And here's again Ryokan, a poem of his. He said, with no mind, with no mind, blossoms invite the butterfly. Excuse me. With no mind, blossoms invite the butterfly. With no mind, the butterfly visits the blossoms. When the flower blooms, the butterfly comes. When the butterfly comes, the flower blooms. I do not know others, K-N-O-W. I do not know others. Others do not know me. Not knowing each other, we naturally follow the way. I do not know others. Others do not know me. Not knowing each other, we naturally follow the way. And beautiful teaching of not reifying self and other, not concretizing self or other with our ideas, our beliefs, our impressions, our history, our images. And it doesn't mean we throw away what we know. We don't, we're not throwing away what we know about self and other, or the history, or the good or bad, right or wrong, but we don't let that block our vision of reality. And so the not knowing is right here, even with what, what it lets what we know be in the background to be used as needed, to be seen as needed, to be understood as needed, but it also allows for something we don't know to be seen because we don't know each other. And we can talk about it in this way, sitting here heart to heart in a meditation retreat, but it's true in our relationships, in our most intimate relationships. I mean, I've been with my wife for 22 years, now a little more, 24 something. <laughs> so, sorry, dear. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
and and it's amazing what it's so because you know I know her pretty well and she knows me pretty well, but we also we're still learning who each other is because we don't even know ourselves totally yet. We're still discovering what's here as. I believe you all are still discovering what's here, and by that I mean the potential and the uh, and the I can use different words the amazingness of what's sitting here, which includes everything Larry was pointing at today, and more. It includes all the ancestors, all the culture, all the history, and it also is not limited by that. There's even more to us than we know. So the mystery of what is sitting here is part of Dharma practice and is part of it individually and part of it collectively. And it's such a beautiful letting freedom, of letting go of our ideas, our beliefs, things like that. And to start to become familiar both with what's known and what's not known. And the uniqueness and what, and, and I believe what happens as the knowing and the unknowing start to be here fully is that the uniqueness of the known is seen even more clearly the uniqueness of the known which is sitting in each seat right you know there is a thing in the west these days as far as i know that people really like to be seen right and it's one of the one of, it's part of the dukkha for all of us if we're not seen if we're not recognized if we're not acknowledged for who we are and that's an important piece to be able to see the uniqueness of each being. And if you see the uniqueness, you're also seeing the unconventional. Because they're not a thing. They're not an idea. There's a living magic in each of us, or mystery. <clears throat> and our practice here, as um, I believe you've noticed, has to do with what's called sukha and dukkha, right? Sukha and dukkha. Sukha's the pleasant or good, and dukkha's the difficult or suffering. And it's something we all know about, all of us. And it's one of the Hmm. It's one of the um, odd um, privileges of being in the teacher role is that people talk to you about their experience in a very real way. And that reality is you see the dukkha that's here for everybody because it's part of human life. It's oddly enough, it's not it's totally personal and paradoxically it's also not personal at the same time it's part of human life 
And I've, you know, I've met a lot of people in this role as a teacher, and it's, you know, I've seen people of every strata of society, different religions, races, creeds, colors, economic orientations, sexual orientations, identities, you know, um, and everybody has dukkha. It's just part of the deal, as far as I can tell. <clears throat> and dukkha has this paradox in Buddhism. There's the four truths, right? There's, there's dukkha, suffering, the causes of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the path that leads to the end of suffering. And they're taught as four different components of one thing. They're not separate, but it's important to be able to see dukkha and the cause of dukkha and the freedom of dukkha and the skillful means that leads to freedom. And they're all connected. <clears throat> And it's when I was thinking about talking and and the history that Larry talked about today. You know, I did my history, right? And so, and I remembered something that I had. I had I, it's been very important in my life, but I haven't thought about it much. Which was my my first really big dukkha, and my first big dukkha was as a boy, about fourteen years old, and. Uh, Things were happening in school, and uh, you know my schools got changed, and I didn't like school, and so I quit school. And but I was 14, and you can't quit school at 14. That's a problem. And uh, and so and but I was out for quite a while. My parents had no idea what to do about it or with me because they were just you know really hardworking, good folks, but. They weren't sophisticated about the kind of suffering that I was having, which is why I quit school. And so at some point, um, they came to me. Actually, they didn't. They sent my brother and who said, here's what's going to happen. They're going to have, the, the state is going to make you a ward of the court and you, you're going to go into juvie and uh, juvenile. Or... There's a mental hospital here in Detroit, a, a public mental hospital, and you would go into the mental hospital because it was clear I was having problems, and and I was, no no doubt about it, but mostly I just didn't want to deal with anything, right? I sure didn't want to go anywhere, um, uh, and so, uh, but it was clear to me. So I was. I was a young 14-year-old, not even through puberty yet, right? So I'm a young, young man, boy. And, uh, and it was clear, and, and actually my brother made it clear that juvenile would be very hard. I was like, I would not survive juvenile in Detroit at that time. That, that was clear. And so I went to a mental hospital, a public mental hospital in Detroit, 
which I really haven't thought about it in a long time, which was called Lafayette Clinic. And I was on the adolescent ward, locked ward, and with a lot of different boys, right? And all, all kinds of kids, all, you know, very different from me, from who, who I thought I was and who I'd been. And, you know, different economics, different races, different religions, different orientations, yeah, very different. And, and I didn't know what was gonna happen, but I went. And it was paradoxically great, which who would have known? My parents knew nothing about psychology, to be really honest, at, at that time. And, and they just were like, didn't know what to do, so they, they were okay, well, you'll go to this hospital. And, and I went, and, uh, and, and it was good, at least in my mind, and this, I could be wrong about this, but it was at a time, meaning I'm wrong about my opinion. My opinion is it was really good because they weren't using drugs. They were doing individual therapy, group therapy, family therapy, uh, work therapy, uh, all kinds of stuff. And it was, but it was very for real. And, and people were for real. And uh, I had a really great um, psychiatrist, shrink, psychiatrist, and uh, Walter Guevara, who was a beautiful guy from Argentina. And, and it was great to work with him. And I learned so much so quickly because I was pulled out of my reality. And being pulled out of my reality, I had to open my eyes. And so it had a practice-like impact because we're pulling you out of your reality here. And here you're at this, right, strange place. and in the desert, and, you know, it, maybe you like it, maybe you don't, but here you are, and then we're saying, oh yeah, be with yourself. And that can be great, or it can be really hard. But something else starts to happen when we get pulled out of our reality and we stay present. And the, the mental hospital was very good at helping one stay present. They were good with the adolescents, a good, you know, the the staff was really good, really good, good folks, good-hearted people working there on every level, the attendants, the nurses, and I mean, it was, it was serious. You couldn't walk out of that ward, right? Everything was locked, and you couldn't, you know, it was, it was serious in that way, and, uh, and it was very powerful, and I learned a tremendous amount, and one of the pieces that was so helpful was it freed me from my small view that I started to have a bigger view of reality, of, of myself and of other people also. It wasn't because it wasn't me doing this alone, right? People were really helping me in many ways. And yeah, I could tell you some stories about that. We, we used to have some fun. <laughs> I'm really remembering now just, you know, some of the guys. Sometimes they'd bring in uh, college students who were in psychology departments to kind of walk through the ward. And we would, we would act crazy for them. <laughs> you know, you know we, we were young, young guys. And, and it, was, 
it was fun. <laughs> and and it was, but it was also very sobering. A little like the Buddha said, broke the intoxication. Because also my family had to come in and do family therapy. Believe me, my family did not know how to do family therapy. <laughs> and and it was it was it was really it was wow. <laughs> wow. And here was the cool thing for me. It was so helpful. They had me go back to school while I was still living at Lafayette Clinic. So that was a rad radical thing to do for me, but also for the school. Because they didn't know who the hell I was now. Really, I remember I, I saw, I was one of the first person I ended up talking to when I went there was an assistant principal, a woman, um, short, she was tough. She was good, but she was tough. But her whole relationship with me was different. And I got it like she didn't know who I was now. And she was a little nervous, but she was also very kind. And it was really beautiful to see her realness and her kindness. And, uh, yeah. And then, and then, of course, the kids, right? Like, oh, I was living in a mental hospital. And people knew pretty quickly. You know, it's not the best thing you want to put on your T-shirt or something. But, but it was also very interesting because now I was with the out crowd. Uh, definitely not the in crowd. wasn't so interested in me. But there, and so then there were people who I maybe hadn't related too much, but like, oh, they would relate to me because they knew something about being on the outs, right? For a variety of reasons. Hmm. And so I learned a little bit about what does it mean to be in a certain, uh, a certain kind of minority, meaning I was a crazy person, right? And that has, that's not everybody is thought of that way, right? That's a unique way to be perceived. <clears throat> and yeah, partly I thought of this because of your question this morning and the personalness of the question and the realness of the question and how important that is that we can be ourselves in a real way when we're not sure of the, the deal here. And that is, I very much appreciate and has stayed with all of us. It's definitely been part of our conversation and maybe more of our conversation here as we live with that of the truth being here in that way. Hmm. And so, I guess the last piece I really want to say is a little more about the mystery of us being here together. We're all learning something, and it's true for the teachers too, because you do. You have a re your own retreat as a teacher, and you keep learning more about what is it to be in this role and how to allow the Dharma to do its thing rather than you doing your thing, right? Because it's not about us doing our thing. It's about letting the Dharma live and respond to 
to the Dharma that's sitting here. And that's a beautiful way or beautiful understanding of the relative and ultimate not being so separate. This is from a man named Ralph Walker. He said, enlightened space, really, and remember Tara was pointing us at space today. Enlightened space, the place of unconditional love. Enlightened space, the place of un unconditional love cannot be achieved until and unless one is willing to be comfortable with paradox and confusion. Enlightened space, the place of unconditional love, cannot be achieved until and unless one is willing to be comfortable with paradox and confusion. And so the conventional is the doorway for the absolute, for reality. <clears throat> and I'll just end with a lovely quote from Kalu Rinpoche. Kalu Rinpoche, a wonderful Tibetan teacher who was talking to us, who said, <clears throat> we live in illusion and the appearance of things. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality you are that reality. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you discover this, you will see that you are nothing. No thingness. You are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Let's sit for a moment, please. We live in illusion in the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you discover this, you will see that you are nothing. But being nothing, you are everything. Thank you for your kind attention. We'll have a period of walking practice.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.